Hello, hello. Welcome to the Eddie Conversation Podcast. My name is Eddie V. Hill, and I am your host. Uh, this is episode number 83, and joining me today is Elisa Cernick. Hello. Yes. <laughs> hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks for hosting me in your space. Lovely area. Lovely surfboard in the background. Thank you. And Thank you. Um, what else we got? Plant to bulb. Okay, great. <laughs> A growing budding plant behind us. Yes. All right. Well, quick foundational stuff on you. Let me just rattle off some stuff for uh for the people and we'll we'll dive in. Um or maybe okay. I should have. All right. So, you are currently you have an extensive history in film. You've been at it for quite a while. I we can dive into the start and where you are now. But the current goals involve jumping into the director space, right? Writer and director space. Correct. You have an extensive producing background. Um, we can jump into all the different. I know, like I know, people watch the show that aren't necessarily from the film background. So, ex- explaining like executive producer versus producer versus like all those other things, and you were assistant to producer for a while yep. as well. Yep. And um, coming up in the agency space, mm-hmm. like the talent agent space i I, like know nothing about that space so i'm like i it's it's so scary to me so having you shed some light on uh (laughs) you shed some light or maybe scare me more who knows um i don't know i guess so where should we uh just should we um i'm trying to figure out where to start here specifically i feel like maybe maybe let's go to the beginning a little bit and then see where you are now and then we'll fill in the gaps so cool so i'll just kind of chat about where i started yeah um so yeah my first job in la um it'll be 15 years ago in may which is crazy um and now i feel very old but um was at creative artist agency caa which i'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this know of um very large talent agency um you know, one of the top in the world with most people you see on movies and television are somehow go through that building at some point in their careers. Um, so yeah, I got, I had somewhat of a lucky break. Normally people start in the mailroom or in the floater pool. Um, a crazy kind of sequence of events allowed me to interview and start straight on a desk for a, like a very senior motion picture literary agent who had been at the company around, I think it was like 35 years. He represented, um, you know, people like Stephen King, James Ivory, Robert Town, these kind of iconic literary guys that, you know, were just kind of phenomenal examples of perfect screenwriting. So I started on his desk um, and quickly I would say I would compare the agency life it is intense. <laughs> um, very, uh, I'd say a lot of high, high, high volume and also high stakes all the time because you're dealing with such high level people that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of room for air. And at the time, that's very terrifying as a young girl out of Des Moines, Iowa. Um, but in looking back in hindsight, now I can see like how advantageous that was starting there because in everything I do from personal to professional now is at professional now is at, um, 
like such a high regard for detail. Um, and I can almost <laughs> automatically tell now when I work with people who started in the agency business and who didn't, um, because they also have that like, you know, level of detail and kind of perfectionism and they have that training that I can see it in their work a lot. So, um, so yeah, he, so mainly he worked in film at the time and this was back in the time before TV really blew up and everybody now is obviously doing film and television, but he was mainly focused in motion pictures. So I was in the film department. I learned and kind of grew up and learned the film business through that. Um, and on top of it, when you're at the agencies, you know, somewhere like CA kind of touches everything, music, film, TV, branded content, digital, stand-up comedians, music. So you kind of get what I compare it to, like starting at an agency is almost like going to entertainment grad school for two reasons. One, you learn so much and you get like a crash course about the entertainment industry within your tenor there. But on top of it, it's really fun. You're meeting, you're in a building with 500 to 1,000 other young 20-somethings who all want to work in the same profession as you do within some facet of entertainment. And you're all just trying to survive, trying not to get fired. So um, there's a lot of parties, a lot of promotion parties, a lot of uh, leaving onto new job parties, birthday parties. They're, every weekend there's something to be networking, celebrating, screenings, premieres. You know, if you were lucky enough for your agent to pass over some premiere tickets. And um, so you learn very, very quickly. Um, for me, I think I just learned the film business, but I also learned what made a great script because I was reading such high level scripts that were kind of by the best, these Academy Award winners, these iconic um, authors and things like that. So, um, so yeah, that's where I started. Um, and then I was on a track to actually become an agent because like most people, when they start, they kind of especially when you're young, it's such a fun, high energy facet of the business where you're going to lunches and dinners and you're out a lot. When you're young, it's kind of like a dream scenario and you're working with all these highly, highly talented people and creatives. And, and so I was on a path to become an agent um, and at CAA and, and kind of wanted to become a trainee next in the motion picture film department. And my goal was, I remember I counted this is also old school, you'll notice, but every month uh, a mailroom trainee would come around and pass out a client list and it was all watermarked. It was a like a hard copy client list of all the clients at CA and that was never emailed because that would be too high stakes to email it. Someone could forward it and yada yada, but they'd pass around a hard copy. And I remember one day when I had like a, a, a kind of chill day and which was rare, but in a, in a long lunch break, I went to the director list and I counted how many female names there were <laughs> and then I counted how many names there were and then I did like the ratio and it was like, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was under 5%. And so, and that was in 2009. So that was kind of my first moment that I was like, okay, if I become an agent, I want to be the person who represents female directors because there are none, you know, there's not a lot of, there's plenty, but none of them are being repped. None of them are working, you know? So that was kind of my angle and what I wanted to represent was finding female directors. So, um, I worked at CA for two and a half years and was kind of on that track to become an agent training next. And then my boss at the time ended up kind of 
unexpectedly moving to a different agency to run the department and become a partner at Paradigm. And so that was, you know, obviously I wasn't expecting that. And he kind of gave me an opportunity. He said, you know, you can stay here and, you know, continue on the CAA path or you can come with me and I'll promote you and you can be an agent trainee when you get there, um, which is what I really wanted. And so that is what I ended up doing. I went with him to Paradigm, which was a smaller agency. Uh, and I wouldn't say, I wouldn't consider it a small agency, but a smaller agency than say like a WME or CAA or UTA now, but still a very, you know, respected agency, which I was kind of excited about because their focus was, you know, less on volume of clients, more on developing clients and breaking them, which I was very interested in. So, um, I went over there to that agency and I became a trainee in the motion picture literary department. And I started that whole world for the next year and, you know, learned the ropes of how to be an agent, how to spot talent, um, learning, you know, meeting all these new agents, executives and assistants and, you know, doing basically all that at the next level over at Paradigm. Great. <laughs> that was a mouthful. It's a lot. Okay. <clears throat> Great. So lots of things I want to dive into on that space. All right. So let's rewind the clock a little bit, just, I guess, for clarification on, on what got you going in the first place. So you mentioned Des Moines, Iowa. Is mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. So you, the objective from the start was just getting into the movie business was like, how do I, how do I get a good foundation in the space was the objective, right? Yeah, when I moved out here, yeah. Yeah, you're like, I just want to learn the process. Like, you're a like, you're a process person. Like, uh, well, I I definitely wanted to learn what I what I knew in moving out here yeah. was that I loved making movies and I wanted to make movies. I didn't exactly know which facet of in doing that was best for me. I had written before. I, you know, I had produced stuff when I was in high school and, you know, it it did tons of different things. I didn't really know all the differences between a director and a producer. And so I just wanted to get out here and figure it out. And it was actually at an internship I did, um, which was before CAA. It was a reality production company. Um, The owner of that company was a, a great mentor. And he said to me, you should, because I said, I want to work in film. And he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know yet. I want to work in film. Mm-hmm. He's like, you need to go to an agency and learn how the business works. And by the time you leave there, you'll know what you want to do. And so I said, okay. And, you know, he said, which one would you ideally want to work at? And I said, CAA, because I knew it was the best one. And so I said, if you get me an interview, I'll get the job. <laughs> and he did. He got me an interview. And I, I went in at 430 I got the job by 7.30, and I started on that Monday. Okay, so you killed it. Great. Well, I think it was <laughs> – I don't know if I killed it. I wouldn't say that. Um, I would say it was very much that old saying of, like, when opportunity met preparation. And my boss's former assistant at the time uh, was leaving to go work on a movie. So there was very little time to fill that spot. And I came in at just the right time, and I was – you know, very eager and willing and to start immediately. And I, I think it was all just timing, really. Yeah, plus you had the, the good word of this other person that yes, helped, get, who referred you, me helped and... get you in the door as well, which is the other helpful thing. Yeah, and another yeah. friend of mine who worked at that internship was already at CA as well, and so she vouched for me as well. And 
I will always owe her. <laughs> yes. No, for sure. Okay. Yeah. It's who you know, timing, opportunity, preparation, all of the above, all luck, the things, yeah. all the things. Okay. No pressure, people. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so, okay. Now I'm considering if uh, let's stay let's stay in the world that we're talking about right now. It's before we move into producing and directing. Let's I can I I'll let me ask questions about sure, sure. the agency yeah. if I may. Um, where okay, the one at the top of my mind is scouting talent. Mm-hmm. So like you're talking about how. You're looking at the list of directors. And you're like, oh, there's like no female directors here. This is, I don't know. How did you feel about the Oscars this year too? Is that that was a thing, right? The directors. Yeah, there's... yeah. I mean, it just kind of proves that there's still so much work to be done. And you know, we say we're moving all in the right directions, but I, I mean, I think it's going to be many years before we're at the level of which we need balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess for clarification for people this year all the directors nominated for the Oscar, the best director were all men, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So either way, okay, so with the objective being, I at the time, I want to represent female director voices and find these directors. Is there a, what's the process in finding talent to represent? Like what's the, what's the typical versus like how would you approach it? being that you were considering going down that route? Yeah, so like at the time um, when we were what considered junior agents, so to speak, as agent trainees, junior yeah. agents, and your job, you know, in a dream scenario at that level, you're, you're, you're on a bunch of teams with senior agents who represent senior directors and such, you know, experienced directors. And you're servicing, helping service clients, you're covering studios and trying to help fulfill open directing assignments. And you're, you're doing all the junior agency or junior agent tasks, which is service, 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 and be of help to all your senior agents. But in a dream scenario, as a young agent, you want to find that director or writer that nobody's found and you suddenly get them the big studio job and break them. Um, or at a Sundance, they go with you to, you know, for, they want to be represented by you. So, so, and w- there's a number of ways, obviously you can find talent, but it's 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 a it's a a variety of ways. One is, of course, getting out there and hitting the ground running and going to all the festivals, um, scouring everybody who's won anything in any contest, um, putting yourselves in the right rooms and going out a lot in terms of where you're going to meet these people, um, premieres, events, festivals, uh, you know, you name it, any kind of panels. Anywhere where you could put yourself in a room with someone potentially that you were interested in representing, you kind of had to go do that. And then it was about forming a relationship with them. Uh, Also referrals. Referrals are a huge way to find new talent. And that was almost something, I mean, any agent will tell you, like, it's that's always best case scenario when you get referred a great script, maybe that nobody has their hands on yet. And you read it and it's phenomenal and you're, no one's even calling them yet because it's from Joe in Silver Lake who has no access to the entertainment, but his, his agent assistant friend passed it along to his agent and boom. So there were definitely scripts like that. Um, I remember one in particular at Paradigm that um, now the, the guys have, uh, I think they're on their third season with a show on Amazon and they came from 
an agent assistant who went to college with them and liked their first script. I'll never forget it. And passed it to their agent. Their agent liked it, sold it. And so that is awesome when that happens because you're you're finding people that would have never been discovered unless a friend was just in the right place to be able to get your work in, in front of someone who can do something with it. So I, I always say there's there's so many talented people in L.A., but they're all on their couch without the right access or they're all on their computers without knowing who to give it to or they're working in coffee shops and bars and they don't have the access point. And so um, when you get something like that, that's always really exciting because not everybody can afford to submit to major festivals and, and make stuff with their own money, and but yet they're wildly, wildly talented. So there's a number of different ways you can spot talent, but um, – there's also poaching, which, you know, is kind mm -hmm. of... Well, yeah, I guess before you get into poaching, <laughs> because what it feels like to me is... Because all, all of the filmmakers, the ones that are just starting out and have have the voice that they've been building up and crafting, and they've got their scripts that they're ready to put out, and they're, design, they're doing all the work that they could be doing, and then they're just like... I gotta find my person to represent me, or I gotta the, the next level is like I I gotta I need I need to build my team essentially, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then so they're they're accessing all the avenues they feel they have they they have access to, and they're shouting out into the void a little bit. And then there's the people on the other end trying to listen for <laughs> for the calls. Yeah, and it's like wh where are the people? Where are the people? And then we're like we're here, we're here. And yeah, it's almost like you're in different rooms shouting. It's like we're uh, going in circles a little. But bit. But there's no bridge. Yeah, there's often not a bridge, and yeah. it's something I've I'm still fascinated by, having been on both sides of it and know people on both sides of it throughout my tenure in LA, is that that bridge is so needed, but it's also they're also such separate islands and bubbles. So. Usually the bridge ends up being <laughs> an assistant somewhere who is passing along. I mean, the assistants really have the most access to up-and-coming talent, and that's why yeah. assistants are so valuable. They are the young ones on the ground going out every night, here with all the people who just moved to L.A., living with them, partying with them, and reading their stuff, trying to help each other out. And that is a great access point into finding new material. And agents – very much rely on their assistants and it's why you know assistants like that who are out there doing that you know become of great value to the agency and they get promoted quickly and they become agents themselves when they do that because agents in their 30s or even late 20s they're just not out and about like that they have lives and families and and the younger assistants are able to do that makes sense Okay, so now poaching. Poaching. <laughs> yeah, the other tactic. So yeah, poaching, I'm sure everybody who's listening has heard about it, if, at the least if they're from the representation side of the business, which is like poaching clients. So if there's someone, you know, show you're watching and you love the creator and you look it up and they're repped at WME, but you work at CAA, um, you know, nobody wants their clients poached. But I would say it happens all the time. It wasn't really something I was interested in doing, um, mainly because I was always interested in finding new talent that nobody had discovered. But, um, you know, high-level clients are poached all the time, you know, or, or are tempted to be poached. And a lot of that is just finding out which client, which creative is unhappy where they're at. That was always kind of a key phrase. You'd be in these big meetings and someone would be like, yeah, I heard so-and-so is unhappy at, at UTA. And then the whole agency would, you know, well, I know so-and-so who can get us into, you know, yeah, and then it's how a do whole, we, how do we get them? Yeah. Then it's, then it's a strategy game of like, how can we get to them? Who has their number? Who has their personal email? 
oh, I know their manager, I know their attorney, and it was always a, you know, some sort of way in. Um, you know, it happens a lot more in the agency side. Management, it's really looked down upon poaching, so that's not really a thing in the management side of business. But um, at the agency worlds, yeah, I mean, people jump around a lot, and and it's often understood, you know, a client who maybe is really talented but not getting the traction at so-and-so agency can pop over to another agency with the right agent and suddenly be working nonstop, so. Yeah, so what's the, yeah, what are the typical reasons for, because, I mean, you know, it's even, I guess, just agents in general when, you know, I talk to actor friends, like new actors starting out or whatever, you have their, their, junior i don't know what i don't know agents the but more of the point of like they're like i don't feel like i'm getting the auditions i need or i don't feel like i'm being pushed or they're not they're not communicating well with me and it's like well you should probably find somebody who's advocating and who believes in you and finding that right person is hard yeah but then finding the person that says it and also does it is even harder yeah so you're absolutely right so i imagine it's probably the same thing in kind of all the aspects is mm-hmm. i'm unhappy because I'm not being put out there. Is that kind of more of, uh, yeah, I, I don't but, know, I don't but know I what other, say, yeah, what other stuff And this is. might be the most important thing I say today <laughs> to up and coming talent is there's an expectation. I think when young talent gets suddenly their big break and gets a rep that all the puzzle pieces are going to come together and they're going to work all the time. And they're, you know, it, it's a naive thought and this is why. Um, just because you have an agent or manager doesn't mean your career has started almost always that agent or manager isn't going to be the person to get you your first job. And rightfully so, they may be pitching you around and getting you exposure, but it's very hard. Usually you need to be the person to get you your first job and your agent will be the first person to do your deal. (laughs) And because you're finally making money now. And so a lot of times, you know, an actor through relationships and connections and hard work has already done the work and they're making money. And that's when a rep comes along and says, well, I want to be on your journey with you. I believe in you. And you're already doing the work and you're already working. But, you know, and sometimes agents, young agents will take on a totally developmental client that they just believe in. But usually by the time you get a rep, it's not because you've never worked a day in your life and someone spotted you off the street. No, it's probably because you've already put 20 years in. You have a body of work that's very impressive. And you've already been paid to work. And someone's like... I want 10% and I believe in you. And so that's when you start working the, the more. The 10% first. And then I also believe in you. Well, listen, there's there's plenty of different ways an agent can work for you. But in an ideal scenario, you want an agent or manager that truly, A, you connect with on a personal level, that you're going to be okay with talking to this person for potentially the rest of your career, um, that you trust Um, that you know sees your vision of what you want to do for your career and can also be additive in that vision, Um, but that also is going to go to bat for you. And, I mean, your agent and manager, to me, at least how I see it, is your biggest fan. Uh, They believe in you the most, and when they're in a room, they're bringing you up as much as possible. Um, And that has to be genuine. They have to really believe in you, otherwise it doesn't really transpire and convert into work. And so... That's an ideal scenario, but a lot of people, you know, when they leave their agents, it's because, oh, I'm not getting out there enough. I'm not getting out there enough. And I'm like, well, have you made money in what you're doing yet on your own? You know, because I think don't rely on an agent or manager to make you money. 
rely on you to make you money, rely on your agents to do your deals. And then once you're making money, they're going to bring you more work. And that's usually how it goes. But I think almost I always hear from young people or, or not necessarily young, but more greener creatives that are just getting into the business who do have reps and are lucky enough to have reps. They say, oh, I'm not getting out there enough. I'm not getting out there enough. And I'm not being pitched around. And you're going to, that's going to be the case always when you're young in your career. Pitch your, you know, you have to pitch yourself around. You have to get your own work. Yeah. I imagine it's probably like that for more than just even your first project. You're probably going to, you're probably going to be always doing some aspect of that. Yeah. You have to be your biggest agent first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you really do. No, your sure, your product sure. is you. And if you don't know how to sell you, how do you have the expectation for an agent or manager to sell you if you don't know how to sell you? So that's, that's where I personally would always start is, you know, and you can't rely on other people to make your career happen. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you'll be in LA a very long time. (laughs) Not with little success. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That was the key. Mm -hmm. Um, Great. Great stuff. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So poaching. All right. So there's, that's okay. That was the finding, that was a scouting talent question that I had. All right. Well, I don't know. Let's. Uh, I'm trying to. I think. I think I'm good on the the agencies. I don't know. That, that's pretty good. I mean, there's. I'm curious about just like you, being that you were at it for so for for long enough that like it's second nature almost to understand what a junior agent goes through. Yeah, it's like, almost five years. Yeah, four and a half years. You were there. like. Yeah, the, 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 the junior agents are doing all this, the servicing of the, the more senior agents and they're doing all the junior agent stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what the junior agent stuff is, but okay, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it's, we, like, it's a combination of servicing and hoping to have maybe in your first one to two years or three years, one big client you break or so, you know. Mm-hmm. You're not expected to go sign 100 clients in your first couple of years. You're expected to help the agency make money, which is helping service the current clients. Yeah. Which, I don't know what that entails, I guess. I don't know what servicing clients means. So servicing <laughs> clients means, um, for instance, I'll give you like a hard example here. If there's a director client and you're on a team with, you know, a senior agent and you are on that team, the senior agent may not be um, the daily contact because the senior agent's very busy working on high-level deals and probably has 50 clients and so the younger junior agent might be the point of contact that services the client daily. So that client's always calling that agent, that point of contact for any needs they have. And then on top of it, that junior agent is the one kind of responsible for pitching them for jobs a lot. So servicing them means attending to any and all of their needs as a client, any daily contact, checking in with them. Uh, bringing them scripts, saying, I think you'd be great for this. We, we got this script in. I think you should direct this. It'd be great. Yeah. So then does that mean you're the you're the one reading the scripts and looking at projects mm-hmm. and then... Trying to get them work. Yeah. 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 So then if you if there's 10 scripts over the weekend that people say oh, are open directing assignments, you might be reading those 10 scripts and bringing them too and saying, these two I think would be great for you. I read them. You're perfect for it. I know you can execute these send them to the director. The director comes back and says, I love one of them. So now your job as a director is to go back to, you know, Warner Brothers, whatever studio and say, I want to, you know, this client loves this and he'd be great for it and make a hard sell and pitch. Um, or also it's fielding. And that's kind of for a younger director that you're trying to pitch and get work. But a higher level director, you're fielding all the incoming submissions. So let's say 
you know, Christopher Nolan, well, he does all of his own work, not a good example, but if you think of a director who often takes on other, you know, other people's screenplays and directs, um, they're probably getting several submissions a week. Um, you know, they want your client to direct this. And so you have to read those, field them, filter them, and not waste your client's time with anything that is not high level, not a good script, not, you know, not good for their career to do. You're, you are the filter system. Yeah. So I need, I need the junior agent to like my writing. Kind of do a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. But the senior agent's going to come on when you book that work and help you get them the best deal, work with that junior agent, teach them how to do a deal like that. Um, you know, be there as the trustful source for that director as they're closing that deal, as they're on set. I guess I'm thinking from like the writer's perspective of like, oh, I want this director to direct my stuff. Oh, I I need the junior agent that I need their agents, junior agent to like my writing for the director to even have a shot at reading it. Like it's hard to get straight to the, the source there. Yeah. It's really hard to get to talent in general. Um, that's why having relationships with agents and managers or attorneys, all of the above is so important. Cause you can, if you, if you have relationships with them, you can get to their talent. Um, and that they're more likely to be a part of your project. If there's a relationship there already, rather than cold calling yeah, agents. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I think <laughs> that's good. I want to move into producing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of, that's where we met was I, I, I was script supervisor on a short film that you were producing directed by, Jesus, uh, remind me, I just, I had their name, uh, Albanese. Albanese. Yeah. yeah, Maya. I was thinking Alba Albanese, but <laughs> Maya Albanese. Um, yeah, that was the Ringmaster. That was a, that was a two day, a two day pretty extensive short, I think. That was a, I think it was, what was it, total three and a half? Was it? Oh, there was, yeah, a, we had a half day that not a skeleton crew was there, but I think we had three total, three and a half total days. Yes. And is this one of those scenarios where you, because you were, Produce, you had a small producing team for that, right? It was you and one other producer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for that, for instance, is that one of those examples where from the producer seat, you can kind of do some of that same agent work that you wanted to do with scouting talent and kind of partnering with a director with a vision? Like it's almost another form of representation. Is Do you see it like that at all? Or uh, Yeah. I mean, anytime you're a producer, you're essentially, I mean, coming from that background is always applied to what you're producing. I mean, producing, it's, you know, really a 50-50 split between business strategy and also being creative. Um, and some producers lean heavily more in one direction and have different skill sets. Um, my Because I come from such a business background, starting in the agency world and having a business degree... I bring a lot of business acumen to my producing, but I'm also a creative, obviously. And so I'm really kind of 50-50 split. So when I approach producing, I very much approach it in a way as if I were an agent and would I want to be in business with this person and would I want to cultivate their careers and um, why do I want to work with them? Do I believe in them? Do I see a future for them really within the industry? And Maya was definitely one of those people I did. I, I saw very early on when I had met her that I think she has what it takes to be a strong female force. Yes. How did you meet? (laughs) So funny enough, we met in women in film. We were, I was a mentor in kind of their mentorship program. And she was originally the, I had a group of like eight, nine girls in this group and she was one of the girls and we had kept in touch over the years. And, um, you know, I, I, she would send me her shorts she was directing, her commercial work, and I was always very impressed by it. 
Um, and then, so when she said she wanted to do Ringmaster, she's doing this proof of concept and this was going to be her first feature. Um, you know, she called and asked me if I wanted to come on to essentially oversee the short film, but be attached to the feature. And that way she really wanted a producer that was going to be involved within the proof of concept and be able to craft it in the best way to sell the feature. And so that's kind of how that came about with me on that film. Okay. So were you, did you, did you have a chance to be, did you help shape the script a little bit and you carve that out and yeah 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 yeah. so uh, i would say i definitely had a hand in shaping the script um like any sort of you know like producing any sort of script in that way um a lot of the physical becca our other producer really had in place which was great she's a really really strong physical producer um and so it was really coming on to oversee it and make sure that we were getting what would work the best from production all through post of how to convey the story and best in 15 minutes give you a glimpse of what 15 minutes of a two-hour feature film would look like to some degree while also giving you a sense of the characters, giving you a sense of the world, but also teasing you enough to make you want more. So that was kind of our objective with the proof of concept. Yeah, I know when when I was a part of it, the thing that I was looking at too was like, I got sent, I think when, when I was being, I wasn't like scout, whatever, I was being approached to script supervise. I know I was sent like the pitch deck for it and I was, the pitch deck was really, was really pretty. Mm-hmm. And I know I use that as my reference when building a pitch deck later for sure. I'm no, like, it's this. an excellent example of a pitch deck. I mean, I refer to it a lot as well. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, this is a great pitch deck. This is, mm-hmm. you know, it's not too complicated and it's, yeah, to the point, all that good stuff. Um, so when I was there, I think because one of the slides had the budget on there. I think that and it's public too on like IMDb and stuff. It says a hundred k, and I'm I don't know. I'm I'm always kind of weary. I'm like, is this really the budget? <laughs> like you know, like when I was saying I was talking to you about a a project that I worked on, and I was like, I don't know if I believe the budget on <laughs> on this thing. I don't know. If, do they really have the money? Or is this the hope money they're hoping to get? Like all that kind of stuff. But regardless. I was thinking about it. This is a hundred K short, you know, like mm-hmm. what, what is this? Where's the money going? Where's, how's the, how's, cause like you're saying, it was kind of like a three and a half day or two and a half day. I forget. I feel like I was paid. I mean, I was on, I think s- you were two of those. Right? I wasn't the skeleton shoot yeah. day. There was like a, the outdoor there was a forest, forest shot, chase yeah. kind of sequence thing. Um, cause yeah, we had two at the, uh, the Paramore yeah. the skeleton crew third day. And then we shot at the house the fourth day. That house in um, oh, La okay. Cunada or something? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Which it's all served as back. the real world house. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, it's interesting that there's like this whole half day where it's the skeleton team. But so breaking down the breaking down the budget in my head, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I can tell. Yeah. The, it was a crazy shoot. It, it, was, was, a, it was a very ambitious <laughs> shoot. It was it was a lot. It was intense. Can't believe we pulled it off. <laughs> yeah, you pulled it off. Yeah. Because I know... In the middle of COVID, mind you, where it was the huge surge at the top of 2022 where nearly everyone in the nation right after Christmas got COVID. I mean, me and Maya both had it a week before we shot. Most everybody we worked with had had it. And like a miracle, not one person uh, came down with it on set during the shoot. Yeah, I almost imagine that that's the ideal setting. Is like, really hey, was. hey, <laughs> well, it's like, hey, let's actively try to get COVID before this thing starts. Well, that was my mentality. <laughs> I went to a New Year's Eve wedding, and I kept being like, if I get it, though, I'll be fine by the time is, we shoot. Yeah. So I, I was really, for me, I wanted to get. With that said, it was probably 
the most sick I've ever been in my life. So I wouldn't wish it upon oh, anyone. Oh yeah, don't yeah. don't seek. But out I was great illness. by the time we shot. I was I was in good spirits and feeling yeah. healthy. Yeah. So normally when I sign on to short films, they're not as big of a production as the ringmaster that was kind of one of the one of the bigger sh- shorts like the paramore is a huge crazy location mm-hmm. that i i know i i posted like i like to do like my obscure little stories where you can't really tell what's going on or what i'm on but i showcase some of the some like interior of a room and i had friends who were like oh my gosh is that the paramore and i'm like yeah i don't know is this a cool really place beautiful. i don't yeah. know it was awesome and then the and then i know getting the call sheet it was like the crew was humongous and i'm like this is crazy and why uh, what is what do we need two fisher dollies over here (laughs) (laughs) this is intense holy cow yeah it was very intense (laughs) but then it makes sense because maya comes from the commercial background so and becca and becca so that i think was a big reason of why it was done at that scale at that level um is because they're used to that you know I, I mean me too most short films i had done in the past years ago were not at that level either yeah um but i think it was a combination of the, their background their accessibility the budget we had to work with um the vendor relationships already in place from the commercial world and um the desire to instead of do five to ten short films you know maya's desire was to do two really high level ones to get working and get a feature made which is a different strategy, you know. You know, some people want to churn out tons of work, a great body of work, and make a lot of shorts and get a lot of experience and get into lots of festivals, and it might be at a lower production quality level. Um, but I think her desire was, let's do two really high level, and hopefully that'll be what gets me yeah. working. No, that's I, yeah, I think those are two great strategies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess the other things to that come to mind with that project too is I remember being working working with the DP and one of the we had a, like a child actor she played the younger version of another character mm-hmm. and she was super excited with the DP because she was like, "Hey, can you tell uh, what's her, what's the Stranger Things Caleb. actress? No, no, not oh, Kayla." The Billy, Millie, Bobby, uh, Thornton. Yeah, Millie. Oh, I'd have to look it up. It's getting away. We from all me. know the Stranger Things actress. Yeah. Either way, she was going up to Millie the Bobby Brown. Millie Bobby Brown. Yeah, that sounds I don't good. Know. Sorry, guys, if we'd ever <laughs> butchering this. Um, but she was like, "Hey, can you tell Millie or Billy? Millie, it's not Billy. I keep thinking Billie Eilish, but Millie. Hey, can you tell Millie that I say hi and all that stuff? And I'm like, it's kind of cute that she thinks this DP worked on Stranger Things. It was what I was thinking. I was like, well, I don't... he did. Well, I know. Oh, okay. I, I know. didn't know if you <laughs> at the at the time I didn't know. I didn't like I didn't look him up, or I just maybe thought he was second unit, or I didn't. Know. I was like, oh, it's cute that she thinks that he works with the actors. And then I looked it up later. I'm like, oh, he is the he was the cinematographer for season four. Mm-hmm. I guess he was second unit for like the previous seasons and he leveled up on that one, which is super cool for him. Yeah. Now he's getting a lot of really great opportunities, but yeah, he was the DP for Stranger Things 4, which at the time was their biggest premiere of a show on Netflix history when it premiered. And now I think Wednesday, uh, Wednesday beat it. Yeah. 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 But so really, really amazing timing for us to even get Caleb and, you know, that was a relationship with Maya had known Caleb and, I think the timing of his career and us being lucky enough to have him on that project was, I mean, couldn't have been better. So yeah, no, it was fun. It was fun. It was, 
I don't know. Sometimes even on the crew side, we get starstruck with other crew members. Totally. Yeah. I mean, he's so talented and he really brought Maya's vision to life in an incredible way. I mean, really admire Caleb's, Caleb's craft. He's great at what he does. Yeah. So it was cool because I didn't know he was from Stranger (laughs) Things. I was acting like he was just another normal DP, (laughs) another normal DP, whatever. He was, yeah, whatever. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm a little more scared to talk to you, but. We already had our dynamic down. Either way, it was fun. Um, so I is that because you said like you came came on a little bit later. A lot of stuff is already in place for that. But is that a similar scenario on how you like to try to produce things? Not really. Yeah, what's your no? Usually, I'm kind of involved from the get go. Yeah. Um, I was coming off of like a very busy time with the movie I had just done and. Um, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to take on more projects. I had a pretty busy kind of thing going on. And and then, I don't know, it just at a certain time, you know, Maya was very smart at, you know, really kept following up and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I felt, you know, she was so passionate about her own project. And that's kind of what I was saying. Like, she was, you know, her enthusiasm for what she was doing was impressive and it impressed me what she had already put in place. Um, and I think a lot of that goes to Becca as well in, in putting together a team that large and a, a crew that large and and such high-level keys for a short film proof of concept. I mean, we had Kit Scarbo, too, who had worked on, I think, American mm. Horror Story. and um, you is, know, that, is that costumes? Costuming, yeah, yeah which the- was costumes were a huge part of the film. So I think um, – you know, she was definitely the right person for it and brought Maya's vision, like, incredibly to life. That's kind of like the whole, that's the whole... It's all about the costumes. That's the whole vibe. Totally. So I think having her, and then you have Caleb, who's this incredible cinematographer, and, you know, then you're you're bringing on all these other people that are high level and and all the things, so... The script supervisor was great. The script supervisor, one of the best in the business, so... I knew then that I had to do this. <laughs> yeah, once that's yeah. Sometimes I joke with other script supervisors. With um, it'd be cool to like the joke would be when people are considering coming onto the project is like, wait, you have Eddie as a script soup, or like the you're at, you have the script and the script supervisor attached, <laughs> and then you're pitching it out to other. Yeah, directors. when I go out with a film, I always make sure I have my script supervisor <laughs> attached before the, I go to directors. Yeah, the director's like, oh, you have Eddie. Oh, you have yes. Eddie, then I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, gosh, would that be nice? The scripty's dream. <laughs> yeah, that's everybody's dream, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who wants sound? Yeah, we'll do we'll do that for sure. Um. Okay, so you kind of referenced women in film. Are you still a part of? Not uh, as active is... anymore. I mean, I was in it for years, and I did a lot. I was a mentee at one point, and became a mentor. And I really liked the whole organization. But so as I've gotten busier, and I like to kind of do different types of mentorship as well, and and kind of jump around a little bit, so I'm not just staying in one place. Um, so I haven't been active, I would say, the last couple years in it. Mm-hmm. Probably since 2020 um, was the last kind of round of mentorship I did. Okay. Yeah, because it, you know, it makes sense that you were involved or you kind of dabble still is because it falls in line exactly with that totally. whole agency mindset and realizing the need for more women in film. And yeah, yeah, that. no, definitely. Same goals and mandates. Okay, let's talk about you as a director. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just vague, kind of broad question just to get it going, but, oh, why? Why? Yeah, why? 
water <laughs> water I want to direct? <laughs> yeah. Um cuz I could imagine you know talking with different people here and there. I know like the I talked to a sound mixer recently who wanted to produce some stuff and then he him and his wife produced a thing and they they watched this other director kind of like they were just not happy with what came out in the end. They're like, I could do just as bad a job as that guy. Like, can I just like do it myself? And, yeah. But I guess does it come? Yeah, it's just a broad question. But because directing is directing is a whole other thing too, and it's exciting to move into. But yeah. Um, um I would say two reasons. Uh, one, it is by far the most challenging role I think on a set. So for me, I was attracted to that challenge because I would say producing lends itself to my or kind of innate skill set uh, as a person. I'm very, I'm very A-type. I'm very organized. I'm very detail-oriented. I'm very business and creative. And producing is a very, it's very, um, a very comfortable role for me to be in. Directing, I would say, is a very fulfilling role, but a very challenging one that pushes me outside my comfort zone. And so it's really about that for me is how can I stretch myself as a creative? You know, I've, I've done agency world. I've, I've written scripts. I've produced. And so for me, that was kind of the next challenge, really. And, and it's not that I feel, oh, I'm going to become a director and, and, and that's it. That, that I don't see that for myself. I think I will always be a kind of producer, director, writer moving forward. And when I break down how a slate of mine looks right now and how it will probably continue to look in the future is 80% of the projects on my slate, I will probably be producing and exclusively producing, cultivating what I, you know, women and female narratives and writer directors and any underrepresented voices that I'm passionate about helping to bring their project to life as a producer. And then I would say there's a 20% spot there that I'll write, direct and produce or a combination of the three. And I think the reason, you know, beyond the challenge of that and stretching myself, you know, it's really hard for me to write a script that's really a part of me in a way you know I don't write tons of scripts I see myself you know maybe writing five movies in my life that I'll see come to life it's not something that I'm writing and turning out hundreds of scripts daily yeah 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 I'm similar yeah and so for me when I write something it's really hard to believe that someone can bring that personal narrative to life um in the same way I could as a writer and not to say I, I wouldn't write stuff and have a director direct so it's pretty much the only movies I want to direct are the ones that I feel I'm so close to the story that I am the best person to bring it to life. Um, and sometimes that's not the case if I write something and feel someone could do this better. Um, so I will probably end up directing 10% of the projects I'll produce. Um, and that's because I'll feel strongly that I'm the best person to tell that story. But other than that, I have no problem in you know writing something and bringing a director on or producing several projects with writers and directors. Yeah. Okay. So you're pretty good at kind of like zooming out and seeing almost like a more objective view on the story and what's best for that. Like that seems like a tough, that seems like a tough thing to do for sure. It's like, cause there's a part of me that's like, no, Lisa, you can, the story is yours. You can, you are the best person. Why aren't you seeing this? Like that's like, yeah. as far as like a team member kind of pushing you, cause it's like, are you being uncomfortable with this story <laughs> or do you actually think 
Yeah, that 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 kind of stuff seems kind of hard to assess, but it seems like you got a good read on it. Well, I think I always am kind of, again, this is kind of my innate personality, is I'm always looking at things from a producing lens, is I'm like looking at myself even, am I the best director for this? And so I do feel like, yes, at times I am. Mm -hmm. But then I also feel like I've written something and I think I'm not. <laughs> and from a producing perspective, what's the best way to get the movie made to get the material across in the best way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm very precious to certain scripts I have that I, you know, would never let someone else direct, but I'm not as precious to other ones that I really feel that's, I'm not the best person to tell that one. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. Man, I had a good question. I lost <laughs> it. I lost it. Okay. Um, great. <laughs> so, shucks. Oh. It'll come back at the most random Ugh. of time. I'm thinking about... Oh, man. Maybe go on about something while I think. <laughs> <laughs> so directing. Um, that's the why the directing question. Thoughts on how to go about... Uh, I'll just go to something separate for a while, I think. But packaging your projects... Being that you do have that producer eye on it. I remember the question. <laughs> okay. The question is from the director. When you, once, like you say, you kind of have this default producer hat on. Like you're looking at everything as a producer. Even if you're thinking about directing the project, you still kind of put that hat back on. Think about it. When you think about taking that hat off and putting the director hat on and thinking about the whole process it's going to take to make this thing from pre-production, being on set, through post, and doing all the other stuff that movies need after the movie's even done, um, what excites you the most on that process from the directing perspective? Um, I would say it's funny because I like every aspect of it. Um, it well, I would say the most fulfilling thing about it is, and I'm sure you relate as someone who's directed as well, is having something in your head and actually seeing it come to life in the way you saw it is like, I can't think of a better feeling <laughs> as a creative because you have these things in your head and you don't know how it's all going to come together. And and then when you get to see it actually come together and it, and it works and, and it's what you wanted and it's done right, um, there's a certain level of fulfillment for a very neurotic person <laughs> yeah. that happens, you know, enjoy and when that actually works um, yeah. in terms of a level of like preciseness and a perfection you wanted and that kind of thing. Um, now when it doesn't work, that's very frustrating. Um, and you, you know, as an artist, you always are, I could have done it better. I could have done this better. I would have done it this way. And there's always that doubt, but that's just part of the process and any creative process. But in terms of like the step-by-step -step of it all, I really love the moment we put music to a movie. Okay. I okay. would say, um, you know, I love being on set. That's a really fun part, but it's very, very high intensity. It's very stressful. It's a lot of pressure. Um, it's very tiring. It's very physical. Um, and it's... Yeah, it's very demanding It's in very general. demanding and dealing with all sorts of personalities. And, you know, it's it's kind of a, de a death march until you're done. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the 
there's a thrill in that. There's a part of that, and then the moment it's over, I miss it. Like it's wild. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty like, intense a, depression hits. After it does. That. You you come down and you want to be, be back on, and then you're like, no, I need a break. And but I would say like I really love being in the edit. Um, I think that's really when the story comes alive. I love sitting with an editor. Um, I could sit there for days and making it perfect and making a hundred million yeah. changes until it is, um, which sorry, editors. <laughs> no, it's, um, I think they like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, there's a, tough, there's a tough balance in there. It's yeah. yeah. But mostly I like, I love putting music to the movie because I would say like music is probably my second passion, be, you know, behind film. And I think music can change an entire scene. It can change an entire movie. The right song, the right score, it, everything can... It's like it finally has the emotion you're looking for when you add that layer. Okay, so two quick questions. Question number one. You said when, when, you, when you start to see things coming together and your vision is being fulfilled in that way, there's that wonderful feeling you get. So you mentioned the death march of set life. Do you ever get, did the glimpses start coming out there at all? I know it is stressful and it is this, but when you're watching the monitor with your headset on, do you get the feeling there that it's coming together and you kind of know, or does it take till post-production when it's, when the edit starts filling in and you put the music on it that it really, for lack of a better term, sings? (laughs) No, wait, you, I mean, there's a certain level of where I have been able to tell when something's working and not immediately on set. There's a synergy, there's a, there's a spark um, and you can totally feel it when it's like in flow. Um, and then you can also feel it when it's not. It hurts. It hurts. And the biggest challenge in that those moments are how do I get them back in flow and quick? Because you don't have time and tomorrow you're not shooting that scene. So that's kind of the struggle and the challenge and where I think the job gets really, really hard as a director or a producer as well is how do you get everybody back in sync? But no, you can definitely see those glimpses and, and often the monitor will tell you, like if you're feeling something watching the monitor, you're likely going to feel something when the movie's in the edit and you're doing your job, but you also can watch the monitor and you're feeling nothing some days and you're asking yourself, why isn't this working? What do I need to say to make it work? Mm-hmm. How can I, you know, and that's when, that's the hard part of the job. Yeah. And then question two, quick question number two, at what point do you normally like to add the music in? Do you, do you wait for a locked, like a full pass or do you try to help Cause I know there's different aspects like you can go almost the full distance on a full edit and lock it and then send it to score or yeah. What's the, how do you like to go about well, it? Well, a rough cut usually, at least how I've always done it. The rough cut has a, a rough music edit in it. Some like temp temp music in, in some wheelhouse I, I would want it to be. Um, and so that helps feel the flow of the edit too. And, and like, this is the song I'm in the kind of, energy the song needs so let's plop something in there as a as a temp type of track and to feel if that works but you know i wouldn't say the edits like completely locked locked right by the time you do music because sometimes you have to cater the music to the edit and vice versa um and and i think to get music to work right you really have to use music to hit the beats of the edit to have it really hit and so sometimes the edit's already there and you're able to craft the music to that but other times you're not, so you need to go back and tweak things. But um, 
in an ideal world, yeah, that edit is close. And now it's time to lay the music and just push it, you know, across the finish line even further to give it the emotion it needs. Yeah. Yeah, because I know I was, I just, I watched The the Whale recently. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, so good. Can't wait but, to see it. Uh, I think I was listening to, I also like listened to like, I think the DGA podcast had him on or something. And he was talking about, I think the question came up about score. And he was talking about how he waits the very last second to put his music on. He doesn't add anything until the full, he's like, it's locked. And then send it off to the composer and then they do their thing. <laughs> and I was like, that's interesting for sure. Because I know for me, I like to, I like to, I'm like, if it's working without the score, I know I'm in a good place. Yeah. And then the score just elevates everything yeah. else. So I was just curious on like, I know some people like to add it on really early. They, and I don't know how it thinks, but okay, that was just a question. Great. The way it was really good. <laughs> you should see it maybe. Whew. Okay. All right, so you you enjoy all of the process, which is yeah. Um, I'd say pre-production is the part I enjoy the least. If I had to pick something that pre is the harder, that's the producing side. Yeah, I guess <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's 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 um it's very logistical. Um, I, I it's the least creative part of the process from a producing side. It's very very logistical. Um. But no, as a director, you're formulating all the ideas and you're you're getting all your visions ready in that. Yeah, so. yeah, that's I mean that's the pivotal work aspect. Yeah, yeah I guess that is, that is the hard part, right? Is like breaking the vision and yeah, color palettes and, and aspect ratios, deciding and, what you want. You know, uh, that's, that's the hard thing is really really getting clear on what you want so everybody around you can do their jobs well. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think. We're we're nearing we're nearing we're getting close here, but I do want to ask. This is kind of like, I feel like a question that, all right, this is for the actors out there. They're like, oh my gosh, I want to work with Lisa Cernick and <laughs> she's got, she's got all the stuff that, like, how do I act for this, this person and this director? How do you look for actors? How do you, what's your, what's your process for casting? Uh, I mean, that can be, depends totally on what the project is. Mm -hmm. If you're like doing something more indie that there's a, a route for that where you know it's watching a lot of tapes and relationships bringing to the table and you know that kind of thing and then if you're doing something more high level on like the studio level it's it's really knowing and having a, a deep knowledge of talent and, and names and access to them and um, knowing who you want creating lists and then it's making offers and submissions and that kind of thing at the studio level so I mean, it's it's funny because every project's just so different on how you go about casting. It depends on like what you're trying to achieve with the project, what kind of project it is, and um, I would say on an overall basis, though, whether you're indie or in the studio game, a name talent is almost always crucial to the project. Sure, sure. Getting some sort of name that is you know, financing is going to get behind that is going to be recognizable to help your festival run. That's going to be well, even just to get the funding in general from the start to yeah. get the funding in place. I mean, a studio, you're way more likely to sell a package script with cast attached, a director attached, a producer attached, uh, to a studio to get financing than you are to just go out with a spec script, um, which is, you know, not impossible as well, but it's just so much easier to come to the table with something fully packaged with high level talent 
to get funding um, or distribution than it is to come in on a lower level with unknowns and that kind of thing. So yeah, I guess I'm thinking about maybe that I'm not. This is the wrong term. I'm not going to say mid range, but like even if you're doing the studio level piece and you cast your your I don't know. You, let's just say there's 17 cast members that have dialogue or whatever throughout the movie, and five of them are recognizable. I don't know, like 10 of them are recognizable. I don't know how, I don't know what the ratio is. So at the at the bottom of the poll you've got your you've got your server and your bartender and maybe the smaller bit parts that kind of come up here and there. Sure. Are you the, are you uh, like a traditional through the like you go you go through the casting director and do all that stuff or is there a part of it where that um junior agent kind of comes out where like I want to scout somebody and, and put somebody in my movie that nobody knows and is there any fulfillment in that at all or um is it too too much work I mean I'd always like to listen if you can break someone great but it's just hard in terms of <laughs> in terms of how that helps your movie mm-hmm. now I wouldn't say like in a lead role that's unlikely because whether you're in the indie game or at a higher level studio or mid-range budget, whatever it is, always in your leads, people are going to try to cast name talent. And it's almost a requirement if you're going to make that project. Um, but let's say a, a under two, $3 million indie, you can take a shot there and put an unknown in a lead role. And maybe they do get into Sundance and they do win best actress or actor and, and now you're a part of breaking their careers. And if you have, you know, a situation like that, yes, that can be super, super fulfilling that you knew this person had it and you found them and you were able to put them in your piece and they were able to see success and start working after that. Like best case scenario, it's just to get financing. It's like the chicken and the egg kind of thing. You usually need some sort of name talent. But that's not to say like what I like to do personally and at least encourage is – if I'm a part of a larger project that's higher level um, and we have our leads in place, then yes, the supporting roles and the and the kind of, you know, lower kind of, you know, opportunities that aren't necessarily leads, but they're, they're opportunities for character actors and supporting roles. That's when I think it's really fun to, you know, this person that you saw in this obscure web series that's hilarious that hasn't broke yet, it's an opportunity to give them a shot. Right, right. And then that shot leads to their next shot, and then their next shot, and suddenly they are in a lead, you know, role in five years from now. So, yes, I think totally in support of cultivating any level of talent, may they be, you know, high level or not, it's just often that's not an option for a lead role if you're making your movie. Right, yeah, I guess, yes. Yeah. Yes. Sadly, I, no, for, I, sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just thinking from the actor's perspective. I just want to get on set with Lisa Cernick in any in any capacity because Aww, down the because down the line, you know, you're going to be at this for a long time too. So it's like like you said, it's kind of climbing the director ladder is kind of fun too. It's like all right, I had one two lines with her the first time, but now look at what else totally. I've done, keeping doing all that stuff and like down the road is like oh i'm actually a lead person now let's do something like that's kind of and i would say that's a really good thing to bring up um is that building as an actor like from the actor perspective your job even if you have one line on set is to make a positive impression um your other job is 
while you're in these rooms <laughs> that you may be giving these opportunities is how can you build a relationship and make an impression? Because, you know, the, the best way to do a job as a producer director is to pick up the phone and call someone and say, hey, I have a great part for you and I want to put you in this. Do you want to do it? That makes our jobs way easier than having to watch tapes and casts and all that. Mm -hmm, so like mm -hmm. the more relationships we all have and vice versa for an actor, the more relationships with directors and producers you have, that is a, uh, what's it, symbiotic. <laughs> is that the right word for it? Uh, I think so. That sounds... uh, that's a mutual. It's a nice win-win situation. Yeah, it's a win-win situation for everybody. And that's what everybody should be trying to cultivate when in those opportunities because if I really love someone who did two days and they were cracking me up, well, I might not have a huge part from today, but I might have a bigger part from tomorrow and that I'll remember him, that he was really funny and he was a pleasure to work with and let's bring him back. And, you know, the, 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 the thing you don't want to happen is you have an amazing opportunity and you fly under the radar, you show up for work and no one remembers you. <laughs> yeah. You've missed your opportunity now. And I think every room, in my opinion, is an opportunity. It has to be. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, you know. I'm just kidding. No, it, no, it kind of has sure. to be. <laughs> for sure. So, all right. Yeah, you kind of answered the, I was going to do a follow-up question here, but I think we we kind of got it. Um, I don't know. There's so, that's great stuff. Great stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, look at my list here. I feel like, yeah, we got to, we got to wrap this puppy up. I, there's plenty I want to dive into. But time, time is time is upon us. Um, I guess just to maybe close us out, I, uh, it's a new year, twenty twenty three. Are you? What's the? What's what? What can we? I guess yeah. What can we look forward? To? What are you trying to push for for this year? Are you doing the? I know you're trying to get your features off the ground, and you're producing a billion projects probably, but. Yeah. I mean, this year I'm looking at, you know, the past two years, I launched my company two years ago when I went independent, when I left the production company I was working at to start my own company. And, you know, the feature film business is a very slow, glacial pace moving business. As we know, it can take at the very least in the best case scenario a year to get a movie off the ground and in the worst case, 20, um, you know, years to get something to go. And I've seen both, you know, so very rarely within a year, but I would say the first two years of my um, business was really planting seeds, developing scripts, packaging, finding the right teams for these ideas and putting it together and, and, you know, kind of doing all that agency work almost as a producer and like, how can I put this together from a producing hat? And now I would say it's, how do we get a green light this year? So we have great projects. We have the teams in place. You know, my goal by the end of this year is, is to have two of those ideally greenlit. You know, by the fall, I'd like to be making a movie. Uh, and by end of this year or top of next, I'd like another one in the pipeline ready to go. And that's the goal, uh, you know, because I think – and then while that's happening, I have to be planting seeds for what's happening when those are wrapped <laughs> to be ready, What you know, what happens next. So – you're always thinking, and the, the crazy thing is you're, you're always trying to push boulders, several boulders at once, and you never know which one's going to get traction, which isn't suddenly. And one minute you can be, something's looking like it's going to go to suddenly, that's completely gone now. It, it's wild, and you have to be prepared for the flexibility of that and the unpredictability, um, and you're 
emotional kind of resilience has to always be unfazed by those wins and losses constantly. Yeah, and it's helpful when you do have all those, because you call them boulders. Like I like to think about them as seeds too. Like Mm -hmm. you have all these seeds planted and you have your limited water and you're watering this, this day, this, this day. And you don't know which one's going to start growing when or... You never know which one's going to sprout and it's usually like the one you like think was the least likely like that that's the crazy thing like it's just wild how that happens yeah and it helps keep the uh the emotions level because yeah you're like oh this one didn't sprout it's okay i'm, I'm watering these other now we're doing these other, one. these yeah. other ones here if you just if you're putting all the eggs into there's so many too many metaphors <laughs> if all the eggs are in one <laughs> basket and that one doesn't exactly yeah, you, you yeah, can't yeah. just be there's no way a producer can survive if they're only focused on one project at a time yeah. um that would be not a good business strategy so like for me i don't like to be overzealous of my slate and have hundreds of projects that's uh, something i not i don't want to take on what i like about working for myself now is being able to take on projects only that i'm super passionate about and that i believe in and so I'm working hard for each one because I really, really love each one. And so it's not an overzealous slate. It's not bogged down. I don't have the bandwidth for something like that. But there does need to be several, you know, because, again, you just don't know which one is suddenly of the now. But as our culture shifts, suddenly it's no longer relevant, you know, whatever you're trying to say with those pieces. So you're you're always kind of like juggling a moving target and – you know, one actor that is attached to your film from last year could suddenly be canceled this year. And so then you have to start over the casting. So <laughs> it's it's constantly a moving target. And how are you getting financing? And where is it coming from? And who do we need to attach? And which producer dropped off? Which is Which producer needs another one? And so that's the fun of it, you know? And then the, the cool thing is when one does finally go and you're on set and you're making this movie and you know how much blood, sweat, and tears went into it, it's, again... You know, I'd say one of the most fulfilling things is to actually be seeing that script come to life. It, it makes it all worth it suddenly. And then you do your death march. And then when the death march is over, you want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Just this death march. No, no, I no, actually, I lovely. enjoy being on set a lot. It's uh, to me the, the most fun part. But I, I do think it is a very demanding experience yeah, yeah, yeah. as a producer and director. Yeah. You know, both roles, I think, are very demanding. and If you're both on the feature, that is a lot of... Yeah. It's a lot. And you definitely are the top down, and how you feel that day is going to bleed into everybody around you. Are you are you one to push for shorter days and stuff as producer-director to help keep that sanity and keep it less death No, I wouldn't or? say that. I mean, ideally, <laughs> the, the more days we get, the better. That's always a money question, The though. more what? I said the more days you get, the better. Sure, more days, but like, you know, the 10-hour day versus a 12-hour day. Oh, or... yeah. I would, I, I mean, again, that's a money thing. I would always fight for not working cast, crew, and my own self to the bone. I, I think you don't yeah. get good work when people are drained, tired, and exhausted. And so yeah. I'm a firm believer of... And, but it, it's really all about a budget, you know. Some days, if the budget is low and you only have so many days, well, those are looking like 12-hour days. And, and that's, you know, it's wild and crazy and exhausting. But ideally, no, that's not how I'd like to work. Yeah, because it seems like from a producer-director perspective specifically, you have a lot of say on how that goes. Yeah, you yeah. do. And, and it's really just about how are we stretching the dollars. Yeah, yeah. To make sure everybody's taken care of, comfortable, our director's not overworked, actors aren't overworked, I'm not overworked, you know, crew who's working hard already, like 
No, I mean, to me, a dream set is where everybody is excited to come to work the next day and, and no one feels overworked and drained and exhausted. They, they get a good night's rest and they wake up excited to do the next day. That's when it's flowing and that's really when you're getting the best work out of people. That's when, you know, that's where all like the magic happens. But if people are dead tired and haven't slept in 10 days and, you know, are, are being overworked, the, the, the craft and the movie starts to suffer and you can see it. No, for sure. It's, I don't like those. <laughs> no one I, does. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why do we do it? Great. All right. <laughs> well, I guess lastly, lastly, for how do how do people best keep up with all this stuff you got going on? Do you are you are you active anywhere where you, people should keep in touch, or is this I'm not really a big Instagram person? My Instagram's like like family and friends, very yeah, private. Yeah. But I I will be hopefully starting an Instagram soon for the production <laughs> for company? my production company and getting on all that this year and and starting to do more of that. But um no, people can just reach out to me directly if you want to know what I'm up to. I'm like always a coffee and meeting anything away. But I think um you know I haven't really gotten too on board with creating my social media presence as a creator just yet as I've kind of entered this new phase. Okay. So you can find your email at your IMDB. I think it's literally, yes, literally IMDb's on there. Yes, IMDB's good. My email's on there. My, I, my cell phone might even be on there, but I would say I email's always best. Last I checked, it wasn't there. Yeah. But um, great. And then just to remind us the name of the production company so we can keep an eye. It is Inflow Entertainment. Okay. And there's yeah. no Instagram yet. No Instagram yet, but there will be but eventually. I'm <laughs> trying to do just, all that this just year. Just keep searching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Well, thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Lovely. This was fun. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's the show, everybody. Uh, bye bye. Thank you. Boom, 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 boom.